Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Well, hey, everyone. Hot damn. I'm so excited to be here with you. The podcast that we're about to get into, this is a little intro that I'm recording after the fact, and you'll find these at the beginning of every podcast. But the podcast that we're about to get into is Groundwork's inaugural podcast. This is is our big starting point together. And when I was thinking about how to introduce Groundwork, I really wanted to tell a little bit of my story while sharing some of the many things that I'm passionate about. And I want you to think about this initial podcast as a bird's eye view. This is a podcast where we're going to dive into a lot of different topics from a lot of different lenses. We're going to get into the nitty gritty science of things, and we're going to get into some very esoteric philosophy, and we're going to get into some real personal experiences. And my mission with this is around storytelling. When I opened up my butcher shop, Western Daughters, almost 10 years ago in Denver, it was with a mission to find connection through storytelling. What I wanted to do was to visit all of these farms and ranches and truly get to know these families, families that would eventually become part of my family, and bring those stories back into the butcher shop and have this really unique opportunity to tell stories about where our food comes from, the hands that raise our food, the problems that they face, and in turn, to get to hear beautiful stories about what happens around people's tables. And what I found and didn't expect was that often stories came back around health. They came back to these moments where, I remember in particular, there was this moment where this woman had come in and she had been a vegetarian and she was coming back to eating meat because she was struggling with her fertility. And we sat across the counter and she told me her story and I fed her a bite of meat. And by the end of it, we were holding hands across the counter and she was crying and I was crying. And I saw in that moment the deep connection and intimacy that comes through with our food. And there's an intimacy between farmers and their land and their animals. And there's an intimacy just at the breakfast table as you lift that fork to take your first bite of the day. This is something that goes into our bodies. And so that really served as an entry point for me and storytelling. As I've traversed the last decade plus of being in the regenerative agriculture community, I've met so many people whose stories have gone untold. And for myself, I have so much curiosity about what drives people. But as as my journey deepened, I found myself really interested in not just the health of land, but the health of my own body. And throughout that journey of finding my my health over the last decade, I 
became curious about evolutionary biology and how that impacts the way that we eat and the way that we live, how it impacts the way animals eat and the way animals live. And then I saw that all of this leads back to our mind and the, the deep thinking and connection that happens between neurons. And so this podcast was conceived of a way to bring together all the things that I love, mind, body, and soil. And some podcasts will be heavier in one place than another. Some will have a hefty dose of all three. Some of them will be more from the standpoint of philosophy or the standpoint of science or a mix therein. And we're going to get into a lot of different people. And what I want from this is for all of us listening to find connection through storytelling that inspires us to take that connection back into our own lives and to connect with our food, with the land, with our bodies, with our minds, with our communities. And so I hope as you listen to this first podcast, taking this, this sort of bird's eye view this overview, we don't get in too deep to anything. And throughout this podcast, we will do some really deep dives, but I want to think about where you find connection. What connects you back to yourself? What connects you to your body? What connects you to the ecosystem that surrounds you? What connects you to your mind? And what connects you back to your community? These are all questions that I'm really excited to explore with you, and I am just thrilled to have you here. I am so nervous to put this out into the world. And so go gently with me in these initial episodes as I find my footing, and I promise you that I will find my footing. If what we're talking about here resonates with you, if you could please share it in these initial days for others to find the podcast, the more that you share or leave a review, the more helpful it is for me to get these stories out into the world. And so I would just deeply appreciate that. And as you listen to this, I just want you to consider connection and how that shows up for you in your life. I'm Kate Kavanaugh, and this is the Groundwork Podcast. I've thought a lot about where to begin my story, and the only place I can imagine beginning is with death. And so I want to start this story where everything begins, which is with death. When I was a little kid, I grew up with two parents that were obsessed each in their own way with death, and... It permeated our household, but it wasn't acknowledged. It wasn't something that my parents came out and discussed and talked about. It was just this ghost that sat with us at the dinner table, this presence, this inevitability that haunted us at every turn. And I think that even at a really young age, that, that sunk into me. I absorbed a piece of that. And I remember as a kid... I had gone and I had, I had a VHS tape of, of Bambi and my mother came down the stairs and she caught me watching on repeat the scene where Bambi's mother is shot. Uh, just watching it over and over and over again. And I was maybe four years old 
I was trying to figure something out, right? Because here was this tangible space where I could see and visualize death. And it was giving a name, giving a vision to what I was experiencing at home in this quiet and understated way that wasn't talked about. And I think for my young self, there was this obsession there. What is this thing, death? You know, well, I think that maybe my experience is a little bit more uncommon than most people's. I do think that we have closed death off. We have hidden it behind the doors of nursing homes and we have, we have made it something else. We have, we have sanitized it in hospitals. We have shut it away in barns that have nothing to do with our city living, right? The death of, in our food system. So I think as a kid, I knew it was there, but nobody was talking about it. And yet for me, there was this real lingering sense of deep curiosity. And if you're thinking, well, gosh, we don't even know you. This is, this is a really dark way to, to begin your story. I want to address that too. I want to address this idea of darkness because to me, darkness is the primordial mother it is the matrix that we are all born out of, right? Before the universe, before the Big Bang, there was nothing. There was just darkness. And out of that darkness was born all of life and all of the light. At the beginning, we're inside of our mother's wombs. And it is just, again, a dark, aqueous matrix. And it is the only thing we know. And then we are born when we go towards the light. Everything we've known dies, right? To be born, that is a death in and of itself. And it is a death from the darkness and into the life as a birth. I think about the beginning of life that may or may not have originated out of the deep sea vents in the ocean and the bacteria and the thermophiles that live there in this space where no light can penetrate through the depth of, of all of that water. Again, life on this planet born out of darkness. And then I think about a seed inside of the soil that needs that darkness to begin to germinate, that that, that beginning of life must happen in the cocoon and the shroud and the veil of darkness. And so in that, I'm really conscious that all life is born of darkness. And I think we're so quick to assign this word a weight that and a connotation of it being negative. But darkness is required for light and darkness is required for life. And so while this may seem like a really heavy space to begin this whole journey together, I actually think it's just right because, and we'll come back around to this, but the avoidance of death that I experienced as a child, it permeated through my being. And that avoidance of death isn't uncommon because that avoidance of death is very much where our culture is right now. We are avoiding death as much as possible. And you need only look 
to the proliferation of plant-based meats and these alternative oat milks and soy milks and impossible burgers and beyond burgers to see that there is a market for avoiding death. And so this choice, this story that I'm about to tell about myself as a child, it does come back to culture. And I think we've seen it. I think we've seen it. I think we've seen it in the last two years. What of life are we willing to sacrifice in avoidance of death? And so I want to get back to that little girl, to me, watching Bambi on repeat. And it was only about a year or two later that I saw the movie Babe. And I was a really, really empathic child. It's just really sensitive to everything. I really, I, I felt it all. And I saw Babe and I connected that space. Oh, my food comes from a place. And growing up as a city kid, I don't think I really knew where my food came from at all. I don't think I had any concept. And all of a sudden here on screen again is a farm and these animals and a farmer and a process of life and death that I knew nothing about. And I'm five years old and it's weighing heavy on me. Well, I, I don't want to participate in this thing, death, that I don't really understand, but that feels omnipresent in my household. And so how can I not participate in death? So there I am, little girl. I go to my parents and I proclaim, that's it. I'm going to be a vegetarian. And my parents went along with it. And they let that happen. And over the next 10 or 15 years, I experienced a lot of death. My childhood was filled with it. And there was this sort of oh, prescience, a sort of premonition there of all the death that would happen. And that's okay. We are all born in different fires, and, and, and this was mine. And I maintained the vegetarianism up until about age 20. And the whole time, you know, when I got into my teen years, it gave me a real chance to deepen this practice of avoidance of death. Because all of a sudden I had more tools to understand what it was that I was really avoiding. And I fell into the punk rock scene and there was, there was a lot of veganism and vegetarianism there. And I developed other reasons for wanting to avoid meat at all costs. It wasn't just about death anymore. It was about the environment and it was about fitting in and finding a space of belonging. I don't think there's much more that the human craves than belonging. We are creatures that are, are built to want to belong because if we don't, then we're not part of the group and our safety is compromised. And so I have this whole deck stacked for being a vegetarian. And then at age 20, something happens. I had, as a child, been put on a cornucopia of pharmaceutical drugs for anxiety and depression. Some of this continued throughout my teen years and around the age of 18, I really wanted to go off. I believed that there was something beyond these drugs. And, and if you take these drugs, don't want this to, these, 
they have a place, they are for certain people, and we all have to walk different paths. And this is just my path. So I wake up at 18 years old, and I decide that this is different. But I had been told repeatedly that this was my lot in life. I came from two parents that experienced depression and OCD and various mental health issues. I had doctors tell me that I was going to be institutionalized on these drugs, that I should just accept that this was my fate. But I didn't believe that this was my fate. And so at the age of 18, I decided to go off these drugs. But at 20, it's clear to me that there's there's something wrong, and it goes a lot deeper than... How can I even say this? It was deeper than I think I even realized at the time. I knew there was something wrong with my body, and I knew there was something not quite balanced about my mind. And this really is where the next step of the journey begins. I'm a kid who's always been curious, constantly asking why, wanting to get to the very root of the problem. And I remember as a really small child being told about an infinite universe, and there was just this this nagging curiosity inside of me. And I would lay in bed at night trying to imagine what infinity meant, something without end. And I would picture this little golden bird flying through what I didn't understand was the vacuum of space, and it coming to a wall to a logical end. And then I would wonder, but then what would be behind the wall? And if it's infinite, there is no end. And I'd just get caught in this loop. And I think that all of this feeds into just the the kind of kid that I was. And so as I started to come up against some really big health issues, not just mental health, but I was experiencing a lot of gut dysfunction, just massive amounts of fatigue, just wasn't feeling well. I didn't feel like myself and I didn't feel healthy. And I started to ask why. As I started doing some research and a lot of my health journey would take the next decade plus to fully unravel. But as I started to ask why, I started to see a lot about B12 and meat. And at the time, I didn't know that much about nutrition. But I became really curious and decided that maybe it was time to start dabbling in meat. Around the same time, I had met my now husband. I was about to turn 21, and I walked out onto a a patio in Phoenix, Arizona, and there he was, and I was just just the most cynical, angry 20-year-old. I didn't believe in love. I didn't believe in a lot of things. And I walk out onto this patio and there is this man. And I just know in my gut, in this, in this single moment where everything just coalesces that this is it, that this is, that's, that's the man I'm going to marry. And it sounds super wild and he did not have the same experience, but I have this experience and At the same time, I'm having all of these health issues. We start dating and he eats meat. He loves meat. He needs meat. My husband has a, he has a hollow leg and always has. 
And so I decide that it's time. I'm getting called to, to eat meat again. And as I start to frame this for myself, I mean, this isn't, for me, this wasn't just a process where I woke up and said, okay, I'm gonna eat some meat. It went a little bit different than that. I wanted to know exactly where the meat was coming from. And I wanted to know precisely how the meat was raised. I wanted to see it on the land that it was born on. I wanted to hear about the processors that were going to kill and butcher it. I, I didn't want to leave one single stone unturned. For several years at that point, I had been following along a blog called The Daily Coyote. And Treve Stockton was writing about her experience having moved from Brooklyn, New York to a small town in Wyoming. I'm from Colorado and grew up with the plains and the West and just loving all that open space. And I, I was really intrigued by this woman and her experience and watching the care with which she was sort of stewarding these animals. I had, I had caught a glimpse of maybe how farming could be. And so living in Phoenix, Arizona at this point, I decide that I want to go find people that are raising animals similar to the way that this woman was. I start at the farmer's market. I think this is, what, it's 12 years ago, so it's around 2010. So farmer's markets are in a slightly different place than, than we find them in today. Started at the farmer's market and meeting farmers that were there and carrying meat and asking if I could go back to their farm. I was young and I was idealistic and I started going back to the farm with these farmers and it just opened a door. It, I mean, it opened a portal. I just, it opened a portal to another world that I didn't know existed as this kid from the city, this, this angry punk rock kid that came from a tough household and it opened up a portal. And in that portal, I found a hint of something I might have been looking for, and that's connection. I want to step away for just a second, and I want to talk about this because I think that this is really important. For all of human evolution, we have been connected to our food. And I think it's so important to remember that in the time clock of Earth, right, humans, humans arrived just a couple seconds to midnight. If it were a, if it were a 24-hour clock uh, and it, it starts, you know, at midnight, coming around, humans just arrive a couple seconds before midnight. So, so much happened before we got here. And, and the 200,000-ish years of modern Homo sapien are really just a blip in time. But they are 200,000 years where all of our biology became hardwired, where what it what means to be human was crafted. And in this entire time, our connection to food was paramount. And I want to imagine for a second what a day as, as a hunting and gathering Homo sapien might have looked like. You would have woken up probably a little bit hungry, and your first thought would have been, where is my next meal coming from? There are no refrigerators. There are some ways to preserve food, certainly. But 
there's no immediate access. And so, you know, that I have to feed, I have to feed myself, I have to feed my family, I have to feed my tribe. And so you get up and you'd go hunt and you'd go gather. And so those first thoughts of the day and really what the day is going to be comprised of is seeking out food. All of your biology is going to become attuned to that space of seeking for food. The way that we connect to the earth around us is going to be so much about our food and being in connection with nature in a way that leads us, leads us to food. And I think we see so many biological mechanisms in the human that are governed by nature and governed by that, that drive to find our next meal. We see this in the way that birdsong can regulate your nervous system. Can you bring you into a state of parasympathetic rest or digest, rest and digest has a lot of power. The way that perhaps as we were seeking out our food, our vision was, was in a wide panoramic state, which again can activate that rest and digest parasympathetic nervous system. When we go into a more focused vision, as we might have when we saw an animal on the plains that was available for us to hunt, go into that foveated, close-in vision, it begins to activate that sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight, ready to go, ready to take our food. And there are so many other pieces of this. So we are really attuned. And even when I think about dopamine, right? And we're all seeking those dopamine hits. And I, I think we found that we have a world where corporatocracies sort of prey on human biology and how it's wired for dopamine hits, whether you're scrolling through Instagram or playing a video game, whatever that is, it's all been designed to prey on this dopaminergic system. But that system was really born in seeking food. It was born in those moments where you've passed a bush a hundred times and all of a sudden, a hot August day and you pass the bush and it has the most beautiful red fruit. And those are raspberries. And you put one in your mouth and you feel it melt on your tongue and you feel the sugar and everything in your system, right? That sugar, that means fat storage. That means calories. That is what we need going into winter. Your dopamine system is just, it's lighting up and it's firing thousand times per minute. We call that a reward prediction error. You didn't know you were going to find those raspberries. And now we see that when we get a sudden flag on our Instagram inbox, or we see it when a surprise email comes through, reward prediction error. I didn't expect that. And it feels so good. But this system was hardwired alongside food because that was really our main objective. So there we are, we've hunted, we've gathered, we found this bush with berries and gotten our dopamine hit. And then we come back and we sit around a campfire and we begin to talk about our day and we begin to tell stories. And I don't know what those stories might have looked like, 
But some of them were the transmission of knowledge, knowledge about the hunt, knowledge about gathering, sharing about the bush with these perfect red berries. And some of them would have been stories. And so as we dive deeper into this podcast, this is about storytelling. And it's about how as humans, we're really wired to tell stories. And the transmission of those stories is a part of the way that we find connection. And my story is about finding that connection. So I wanna come back into where we are in my story. I'm going and I'm, I'm seeking out meat from these farmers. I'm finding that something has been missing my whole life. And I, I, could not, I could not have, for the life of me, named it at the time. But the thing that had been missing my whole life is connection. And by going back and finding these farmers and seeing the land that these animals are being raised on and touching them and looking them in the eye and really feeling that this, this is nourishment. This is a different kind of nourishment, something that, that is so foreign to me, but, but it feels like coming home. It changed my life. And so there was a first piece of, of meat. I, uh, I had actually gone with my husband to Sedona, Arizona, and we were, we were just going for a little day trip and to, to kind of mess around. And we had stopped at the Cowboy Club, obviously, for dinner. He had gotten the big game burger, and I'd gotten a salad. And we were there in our very stereotypical roles when I asked if I could have a bite of his big game burger. And being the wonderful man that he is, he passed it over, and I took a bite, and then I took another bite, and then I stole his burger, and he ate my salad. We drove home, and we woke up the next morning, and it was a Sunday. And he rolled over, and he looked at me, and he asked me, what do you want to do today? And I looked at him, and I said, I want to eat another one of those burgers. And this is the moment, and did I mention that I have just the most wonderful husband? He drove me back to Sedona three hours, one way, to eat another burger. And at the end of this burger, I set a little piece aside and I, we had ordered some dessert and I wanted that last bite to be whatever that unctuous, meaty, just primal, carnal, can't get enough of it meat was. And that was it. We went to the farmer's market and I started researching about food. I started figuring out what it was that I was looking for and the idea of eating meat became an obsession. It became, it hypnotized me. It drew me in. It felt like a soul contract that I needed to fulfill. And so I learned a little bit about our food system and about how animals are raised. And I knew, you know, I knew in my, my teen years of being a vegan and a vegetarian, I had seen the PETA videos and I knew about factory farming and, and the perils of it. And I knew what I didn't want, but I didn't know what the alternative was. And so it was through research. And again, you know, I'm just this little kid that just wants to keep asking why, why? Well, why that? And so as I'm 
continuing to ask these questions, start eating 100% grass-fed beef. And beef was really my first stop. And what amazed me was how much better I started feeling. All of the sudden, some of these problems that had plagued me, especially energy, depression, anxiety, they all started to abate. Just, just with meat. That's all that I had changed. But it had changed everything about me. And that, that really got my curiosity running. Well, shoot, what have I been missing out on all this time? And at the same time, I become more and more curious about our food system because it felt to me, well, why didn't I know that this was here, that this different way of raising food? And so I start just visiting farms and ranches and I start learning how to cook, right? Because this is another key piece. And I think that we see that. We see that in our human history too. We see that there's certainly some debate about the point at which brain capacity expands, but there's a lot of, the, the, the main theory is that our brain capacity begins to expand when we start cooking meat, because all of a sudden, digestion becomes easier. And so we have, to, we have to divert less energy into digestion, and that energy can actually go up here into thinking, into our brains. It makes so much of the nutrition in meat more bioavailable. So suddenly we're getting this really nutrient-dense food that is fueling, it's fueling our evolution. And I think in its own small way, it fueled my own evolution. Because all of a sudden I feel better, feel less depressed, I feel less anxious, I have more energy, I have more life force. And I, I really can't get enough. I'm trying every cut. I'm learning how to cook. I start digging into organ meats. I try heart for the first time. And I just want to know more. Now, at this time, I was still, I was still in college. I was in my, I think, my seventh year of college. I started college at 15 and just couldn't seem to stop. And I had one semester left to graduate. And I looked at Josh, this man who I had met, and he was at the time and still is a master carpenter, and worked with his hands. I had never met somebody more steady, more content in a deep, deep, soulful way. And I thought to myself, maybe there's something to this idea of getting out of academia, out of my head, and into something tangible. I want to work with my hands. And so I sought out an apprenticeship in butchery because I, I had to be closer to meat. I couldn't get close enough. And with one semester left in college, Josh, my, my now husband and I, went out on an adventure to learn how to butcher. And that experience, those first experiences of taking a carcass and getting to really work with my hands and to see an animal's life from the inside out. I have always said that this is one of butchery's greatest gifts, that you get this really unique opportunity to see the life an animal lived from the inside out. It's like looking 
backwards through time. You can see the color of the fat and all of the nutrients there. You can tell what season it is just by the color of the fat in some places, right? When I'm in Colorado, when I'm in the West, I can see the beta carotene that's only in the grasses during that time made manifest in this deep, rich yellow fat. I can see how much fat there was what kind of life of luxury this animal might have lived, what it might have been eating. On the one hand, could have been eating corn and grain when you see like just this superfluous amount of fat. But on the other hand, you know, in August, September, in a 100% grass-fed animal, you just see this beautiful marbling. And you know, you know the getting was good. You can see injuries. I mean, you can see their bones and their muscles and the way they moved. And, you know, if they had an injury, maybe they compensated for it a little bit more. And you can see more robusticity in a certain muscle. And you really feel a connection to that life. And you feel a connection to the nature that fed that life. And I didn't want to stop finding that connection like this was this was just a little piece and i remember thinking about the time this is good this is great but it's not enough so my husband and i we opened up a butcher shop because again i wanted to be closer when i turned 23 did the butcher apprenticeship oh i think around that time when i turned 23 i always write 23, you know, the age that I am and that number of things that I want. And I wrote that I wanted to change the way that 100 people ate. We opened up the butcher shop right before I turned 25. We were in, we're in Denver, Colorado. Name of my butcher shop is Western Daughters Butcher Shop in Denver. We were established in 2013. I'm just about to turn 25. I know nothing about business. I have this strong, unbelievable rock by my side, my husband, Josh. And I just know that I want to support regenerative farming in the West, regenerative ranching. And I know that I want to support it because I've seen the power that meat has to heal bodies. And as we're in the process of opening up this butcher shop, and visiting with all of these farms, I get to see something else. I get to see the power that meat has to heal land. And this, this opens up another portal. I've experienced firsthand, time and time again, and we'll talk more about my healing story, the power that meat has to heal a body. But as we were visiting dozens upon dozens of farms and ranches in the West that were practicing regenerative agriculture, and at the time that term term hadn't really come online, sustainable. And what I mean by that is that so many of these farms and ranches were employing practices that mimic those of animals in nature. And I think it's important here to remember that When we look at North America, hundreds of millions of ruminants roamed the plains. And there was a co-evolution there. They co-evolved with the grass that covered those plains. 
the grass, this perfect organism to grow in these high deserts that don't receive a lot of rainfall. And, and this grass is really magical because it eats carbon molecules out of the air. So it takes them and it puts them deep inside the soil. And in return, it is met with the biggest, loamiest, luscious, just unbelievable layer of topsoil that, and, and when they moved out west, they found that man has ever seen. It's believed that at the time that the, the great prairies were present, they had the power to sequester more carbon than the rainforest. Can you imagine that? Just this grass. But it's not just grass. And I got to walk on untouched prairie. I was out in Kansas with Wes Jackson, who's one of my personal heroes. He formed the Land Institute. He was working with trying to find a perennial cereal grain. So all cereal grains are annuals. And he was working with prairie grass because they have these seed heads, right, that were the predecessors of grain before the dawn of agriculture. That's what we domesticated grain out of, but we domesticated it, and it's an annual, and he wanted to find a perennial, which he did. It's called Kernza. And I walk out onto this unplowed prairie, and it's on a hillside because the only prairie that was unplowed at this point was going to be on a hill where it was really hard to get tractor implements and things like that to, to go on it. And I could just feel... I could feel it. I could feel it beneath my feet. It was soft and spongy, and you just sunk into it. You could feel how rich that soil was beneath it, and those cycles of the grass just sort of dying back in the winter and coming back in the spring and growing just all of this this death and decay made rich, springy, and bouncy life. And it was that grass and those ruminants namely bison, but also pronghorn and elk and deer. All of those ruminants co-evolved. And they co-evolved because they needed one another. The bison needed the grass for sustenance. And it evolved a really special digestive system in response to that, that was actually able to digest that plant matter, that cellulose, And the analogy that I always use here when I'm talking about, so humans can't digest cellulose in that same way because we are missing the enzyme cellulase, uh, just like most monogastric or single-stomached animals. And I think this is best evidenced by if you've ever seen a dog eat a piece of grass and had it come out whole the other end. Well, ruminants are specially attuned to eat grass, and it's through a symbiotic relationship of all of these bacteria that produce various enzymes within their rumen, as well as fungi. And in return, the ruminants give the grass and the soil, they fertilize them with their manure, their urine, they stomp in seeds and turn over the soil, to create more aeration, more space for life. And they apply pressure to that grass, right? By eating down that grass, that grass then has some pressure to make a stronger root system. And those tap roots in the prairie, they reach 20 feet down. Just these beautiful, thick, 
root systems that are reaching down for water and reaching out to create all of this life and space inside of the soil so that oxygen and water can come down and nourish everything so that it can continue to sequester more carbon and build all of these relationships within the soil food web. All of these microbes, right? More than 1 billion microorganisms in a single teaspoon of soil. We're talking about bacteria and fungi and viruses and little tiny creatures all in a single teaspoon that you can't study in isolation. It's so interconnected, you can't take it out of its matrix. And so these two things have co-evolved. And now here we are, modern humans, it's the year 2022, and things have changed because there are no longer millions and millions of acres on which ruminants can roam un unimpeded in a way that that was their relationship to the soil. And so we have to find a way to mimic that. And that's where regenerative agriculture comes in. Here is this space where we can look back to the past and look into the present to see how nature does it in order to rehabilitate, to regenerate soil. And so as we're opening up Western Daughters, we're looking at all of these ranches. I mean, just dozens and dozens of them in Colorado and Wyoming and New Mexico. And I'm seeing this amazing capacity for healing that these practices, and there are many names, whether you call it rotational grazing or mob grazing, and I'm not going to get into the finery of that during this podcast, but let's just call it blanket regenerative grazing. And if you like to call it something else, you call it that. I'm seeing that these practices have a real capacity to heal land, that you can take land that has been stripped of its nutrients by monocultures and by industrial agriculture practices where we add fossil fuels as fertilizer, right? It's how we, how we make fertilizers through the Haber-Bosch and the and I, I don't know enough to really explain this, but the breaking of an atom into nitrogen. And, and we learned this when we were making bombs, and it turned out that, that it also made really great fertilizer. But here we're actually using manure. We're using shit as fertilizer. And that is the way that nature intended it, that our excrement, that our decaying bodies, that that would, that that would feed the earth. In this model of regenerative agriculture where we're mimicking nature, it's healing the land from all of the intensive agricultural practices that have happened. In the West, we see this in this topsoil, the topsoil erosion, right? It's just dust blowing in the wind because there is no longer this dense network of microorganisms to literally be the glue that holds this thing together. It doesn't have these big, beautiful tap roots to keep the soil as this terrain, this living, breathing thing beneath our feet. And it's not just a thing, it's a fucking universe. An entire universe. And we know 
more arguably about the universe above our heads than we do about the universe that exists below our feet. This space is, I mean, there I, I just, again, a billion microorganisms in a teaspoon of soil. Like, that's a universe in a teaspoon. And through this mimicry of how nature does it, and again, I don't think there's anything more perfect than nature. It's evolution. It's trial and error. Like, this is millions and billions of years of, of trial and error and finding the things that are just right. And the things that are just right are so connected they're in such a state of fluid balance, right? That balance is constantly kind of changing and shifting. It's dynamic. But there is this balance. And in biology, we call it homeostasis. And in trying to recreate this balance, these farmers are beginning to heal soil. They're building that topsoil layer again that used to be, you know, many feet deep and is now maybe a couple of inches, much of it blowing into the Gulf of Mexico. But they're rebuilding it. And all of a sudden, the rain that falls in the West, and it doesn't fall that often, the rain that falls in the West is actually able to sink back into the soil because it's not all compacted from machinery and from annual crops that just leave it bereft, without nutrition. I remember I was visiting, I was visiting a ranch in Montana, the OW ranch in Montana. And at the time that the rancher had, had bought the ranch, there had been a little, a little creek that ran through it. And the creek had been dry for many, many years. As he began to rotate cattle through his property, the creek came back. And all of his neighbors would come by and, well, gosh, I sure don't understand how, how you did that. This creek hasn't flo flowed for decades. Because we can heal. The answer to that is because we can heal. Because nature can heal. Because that is our birthright, is to be able to heal. And we only need look to nature to see that template, to see how rich, how robust that technology of healing is, that it is available to us at any, any moment of any given day. And when I saw that and when I heard that story about the crick, it held up a mirror. If these 10,000 acres can heal, if you can bring back that flow of life in the form of water, then I can heal too. And so it just deepened that relationship with me. And it really strengthened the idea of this mission that I had for Western Daughters, which at that point had become that I wanted to heal land, bodies, and communities. And that community piece was about financial sustainability. I think we talk a lot about environmental sustainability when we get into talking about farming, but a lot of these ventures are very low margin businesses that are just struggling by the skin of their teeth to stay in business or working with half a percent to two and a half percent margins. And if you're a business person, you know how shit that is. And I wanted to pay farmers a living wage. I'd gone out and we had given a small starter loan to the gentleman that 
would be and still is our pig farmer at Western Daughters. And he had said, well, why shouldn't I make a white collar living doing blue collar work? And that fascinated me. I came from the city, parents that had never, we, we never even talked about rural communities. I didn't know where my food came from. I didn't know anything about that. And so that turned something in my brain. We have to, we have to pay these farmers for the, the value that they're giving us, that this is an investment. And it's not just an investment in our bodies from a nutrition standpoint. I had already experienced a hint of that. It's an investment in our soil. It's an investment in carbon sequestration. It's an investment in our future. That building real wealth, wealth of our environment and the rural communities that are often the stewards of that environment, that that is crucial. And I knew then that I wanted to bridge a gap between urban and rural communities that I wanted to make sure that the storytelling aspect from all of our farmers, that we were constantly visiting with these farmers and we were able to communicate their stories to our customers in the city so that they could better understand their food system. And that I wanted to make sure that in turn, I was collecting the stories of how the, this food was impacting all of these families that sat at their tables and ate this meat. And ensuring that our farmers heard about that too, that there was this disconnect. And I think in the last few years, we've only seen that disconnect deepen as largely stereotypically rural communities vote one way and urban communities vote another way. And so all of a sudden that's placed at us at odds because this has become the most important thing is our politics. And I'm not going to get into politics, but I am going to get into division because I really believe that food's power is to connect. And as our communities, as our lives, as our brains become more and more polarized, it becomes harder and harder to connect. And I really believe that connection, whether it's connection between you and another human being, you and your food, you and your body, you want to talk about a disconnect that's happened lately. These connections form the fabric of our future. And I really saw an opportunity then, and I think that opportunity is even greater now, that we have to connect all of these disparate ideas, especially as resources become begin to be allocated, resources like water, resources like money, into cities over rural communities that are actually building our environment and feeding us. So we started Western Daughters. We started this butcher shop. It was brutal. (laughs) I don't know if anybody that's listening to this owns a business, but there were times when, there were many times when I didn't know if we were going to make it. There were times when we didn't have enough in our bank account to make payroll. There were times when I laid in bed and just wondered how we were going to survive. And it was taking a toll on me, on my mental health, on my body, on my relationship with Josh. And there were also times when we looked at the bank account and we imagined that if we were to switch from our standards, 
from our 100% grass-fed and finished beef and lamb and our pasture-raised pork and chicken, if we were to switch and to go back into industrial system and to do corn-fed meat, that we could make money. We would be okay. We had that conversation one day and decided that we would rather close the shop than change that mission statement. And I say this, I really want to be clear here that I say this not to be a martyr because that's not what it is, but these values that were guiding me were that important. And those relationships and what I believed that I was building was that important. And so I think this is a great moment to talk about, well, what's the big deal about switching to corn-fed corn-finished beef and lamb. Why wouldn't you do that? To be profitable? When we're talking about evolution and we got to hear a little bit, I talked a little bit about how ruminants digest grass and this really beautiful co-evolution that has occurred that allows them to digest grass. Their systems weren't made for grain. And so what is grain? Well, to talk about grain, I think we have to rewind about 10,000 years. 10,000 years is the dawn of agriculture. And a lot of really important things happen at this moment in time. As humans, we had begun to stay in one place instead of living a nomadic existence and following whether it was food or timber, and there are theories in both directions. We had begun to stay in one place and really cultivate lives there and to begin to build towns and cities. But if you stay in one place for too long, you're going to deplete it of its resources, whether that's nutrients in the form of animals and vegetables and fruit, or resources in terms of, you know, oftentimes like fallen timber. And so then the question is, well, how do you survive if you've depleted all of the food? Well, you have to raise these things. And so this desire, which in many ways was a desire to superimpose ourselves on nature, to no longer say, and this is really important because up until this point, I think that we had been a seamless part of nature. And we are still a seamless part of nature. But 10,000 years ago at the beginning of agriculture is... It's the beginning of a break, the idea that maybe we're separate from nature. And I think this is almost like that movie Inception, that all of the sudden this this seed is planted, that we could make nature better or that we could make nature work for us. And so this begins the domestication of plant and animal species. And the beginning of farming, dawn of agriculture. And it changes everything, right? Just like we talked about cooking meat allowed us to divert more energy to our brain than our guts. And our intestines actually begin to shorten and our brains begin to get bigger. And we see this with our, with our ape ancestors that they have these super long intestines because they mostly eat plant matter and they have a, a smaller brain. And it's called the elegant something hypothesis, and I should know what it is, and it's escaping me right here in this moment. But just like at that moment, 
all of a sudden, we don't have to spend all of our day, all of our life collecting food. We have this chance to nurture other things, to nurture culture, to nurture art, to nurture politics. Our energy is suddenly able to be devoted to other things. And instead of living in really close proximity to nature, we build four walls and a roof and we separate ourselves from nature and we value yields and we value ease before it had been, I don't know what it had been. I like to think that there was a lot of connection in it, that there was a lot of value in that connection that we had with those animals, with our communities, with nature. As we sit in our four walls, we begin to feel quite separate from, from something that we could never be separate from. It's, in, it's inalienable, right? Like that, that connection that you have with nature, it is immutable. It cannot change. You are a part of nature and not separate from it. And there is no force on this earth that can change that fact. But there are many forces, many, many forces that can give the illusion that we are separate. So here we are, we've domesticated cattle and we need a, a way to feed them because we don't have enough grass, right? We, we have these smaller plots of land and there's not enough grass for them to roam seasonally, to have places where they winter in summer, to go south in the winter and more north in the summer and to roam these huge parcels of grass. And so we have them in smaller spaces. It's hard to say historically when grain feeding started, but there's a lot of evidence that it really picked up steam in the 1800s. And then it picked up a lot more steam after World War II, when we had a lot of excess grains that we were shipping throughout the world to, to feed people during the war. And what we notice when we feed ruminants, these animals that evolved to eat grass and grass alone, grain is that they get fatter much faster. They gain weight faster. They get bigger faster. And what we don't discuss at this time is that these animals suffer some for it, that the longer that you keep them, the more that these health issues arise. Things like laminitis and evidence of inflammation diarrhea. Just a hint of dis-ease, right? And I want to go back to that word. We'll come back to it in a little bit, but dis-ease, disease. It's just a state of not being in ease. But they're getting fat so fast that we can slaughter them earlier and bring them to market earlier. And so this doesn't even really matter to us at this point because we're not seeing the ill effects of grain eating because we're harvesting the animals younger. You know, in the U.S., cattle are harvested between, I mean, as, as early as 14 months, but between 14 and 20 months, as opposed to a 100% grass-fed animal that is really at its best 30 months or later. So double the time. So we've just cut the raising time for beef in half and we have a growing population. And then we have a secretary of agriculture named Earl Butts. And he says, go big or get out. We have to get bigger. 
And this is where industrial agriculture and the green revolution really pick up speed. And it really changes, you know, where I think about around 40% of food was grown in backyards and in homes around World War II, especially with Victory Gardens. And prior to that, even more, 80%, you know, was grown in your backyard to feed your family and you had chickens. All of a sudden that diverts and shifts into an industrial system where bigger and bigger corporate entities are doing the majority of the growing. And we see the rise of these corporate entities like Cargill and JBS Swift and Monsanto. And we start growing more and more grain to feed animals, more and more acreage devoted to grain to feed these animals. And they're mostly fed it in the, just the last little bit of their life, last three to 12 months, depending on what system you're looking at. But we're growing all of this grain and these animals are getting sicker and sicker in a lot of ways. And then we start spraying all of these grains with, with an antibiotic, a patented antibiotic called Roundup glyphosate, which is a water-soluble antibiotic that we are applying to the soil. And so I hope you're thinking to yourself right now, wait. I thought there were over 1 billion microorganisms in a single teaspoon of soil, and we're applying an antibiotic? Huh. So I want you to think about that. And then, and then these cattle are eating all of these grains. We've changed everything at this point. And one of the most beautiful situations is that nature holds up a mirror. Every time... I am outside every time I observe my animals. I get a little bit closer to my truth. And so as I'm laying there in bed and I'm wondering how in the world our business is going to make it, could we switch to corn fed? I know that we can't. And at that same time and at this point in my journey, the business had worn me, worn me down to a nub. I was drinking too much. I was doing drugs. I was ruining my relationship with, with Josh, with the most important person in my life. I was eating a lot of crappy foods. I was eating a lot of sugar. I was eating a lot of grains. I felt terrible. And I saw in that moment of thinking about switching to grain-finished animals in order to increase our bottom line and to know that to do that, that I would be causing harm, that I might cause suffering, that those animals would live a life out of attunement with their nature, with the diet that they evolved to eat, the way that they were meant to move, across grass to bend their heads, to, to use their front teeth to bite grass down, to grind it in their teeth, and to go into that deep space that is cud chewing. And I saw that I was causing myself to suffer too. The food that I was eating, the substances I was abusing, the way that I was living was out of alignment 
not just with nature, but with my truth, with my nature, and another portal opened up. And this portal called me back home to heal again. Come, come heal. And so I, I sought a certification in holistic nutrition therapy, and I started spending thousands of hours researching human nutrition. I wanted to feel better. My body was totally broken from the way that I had abused and treated it. My relationship was broken too. I was on a walk with Josh one day, and I don't remember who said it first, but one person said, I'm not happy. And the other person echoed that sentiment. I'm not happy. And this began a moment of, okay, well, let's get curious. What could make us happy? We both believed at the, at the genesis of Western Daughters that it would somehow lead us to the farm, that some savior would come and offer us, you know, a ranch that would make all this money. You know, we were, we were young and we believed in utopia and we were idealistic and we had stars in our eyes. And at this point we were five years in and we begged for money to keep Western daughters afloat. We were struggling and the business was struggling. We eventually found a bridge loan, but we weren't happy. We wanted to be on the farm because that connection to our food that we had sought through Western daughters that began with that, that, that single bite of meat that changed my whole universe. It wasn't enough. We both agreed that we needed more connection, that we wanted to be more connected to our food, that we wanted to raise all of our food, that we wanted to grow most of our food, and we couldn't do that in the city. And so we decided that we were going to work hard to get to the farm. But in the interim, I wanted to heal again, right? I had, I had reached this one space of healing, and I had decided that, again, I want to find healing and I looked to nature because I had seen, I had seen healing there. And I know that I, I knew at the time I was part of nature. And so I can heal in the same way that I have seen land heal, that I have seen grass come back to desertified soil, that I can, I can find health that flows like a creek that's been gone for decades. I started getting really into biohacking something that's been popularized, I think, from everybody from Dave Asprey to Joe Rogan. And really, though, what I think biohacking is, is it's just trying to get back to that original state of homeostasis with nature. It's the recognition that our biology is governed by nature, that it co-evolved in nature. And so there are so many of our systems that are regulated in nature, by our food, by the light that we receive throughout the day, by the way that we move and connect in our environment. And as I started doing all of this research, I saw again that some of my, as I, I worked on this and, and my first steps were I removed all grains from my diet. Just like I would ask of my 100% grass-fed and finished cattle because during human evolution, there were no grains. That wasn't available to us. And oftentimes these grains are inflammatory. 
to our systems. And I removed sugar because again, refined sugars were not available. They mess with our blood sugar. They mess with our mood. They mess with our sleep. I removed vegetable oils because nobody was pressing rape seeds to make canola oil or sunflower seeds to make sunflower oil or grape seeds to make grapeseed oil. And these oils are hyper inflammatory and they are in everything alongside sugar. And there are studies that show that these inflammatory vegetable oils that are called polyunsaturated fatty acids are detrimental, that they cause a cascade of inflammation and oxidation within our bodies, that they cause insulin resistance and blood sugar dysregulation. And I started to heal a little bit, but I think one of the most important things is not what we put in, not that, not what we take out of our diet, but what we put back in. And I returned to the medicine that I knew, which was meat. And I really do believe that there's a soul contract here, right? That my soul was meant to work with meat, that it is a part of my mission, my purpose here on earth. And so I came back to meat. And I started eating organ meats and I started eating bone broths. I continued to eat some organic vegetables, but I found that the more that I removed, the better I felt. And there was a lot of hiccups along the way. There was a lot of listening to popular advice. I tried things like keto that didn't necessarily work for me as a woman with fluctuating hormones. I tried fasting. And some of these things did more damage than they did good. And I was having, I had a lot of hormonal imbalances. I really think that who I was as a woman had just been broken down by business and by my lifestyle. And I really believed that, I mean, fertility is a sign of health, right? And, and to have a healthy cycle like that, that is health. And we know that. How do we know that? When we look at nature. Fertile soil, that's health. When we look at the depleted soils of the breadbasket of the Midwest, where we grow all of the corn and the soy and the sugar beets, there's nothing left in those soils. They're just eroding. And so, so was I. I mean, my gut health was completely compromised. And so there's a lot of trial and error, but the closer I got with biohacking was when I really started looking at things like circadian rhythms and the idea that your cortisol, which we generally associate with being a stress hormone, but is also part of the hormone cascade that wakes us up in the morning, and your melatonin, which is the hormone that we generally associate with sleep, is regulated by the light that we receive in our eyes in something called melanopsin receptors at sunrise and at sunset. And the amount of blue light that we receive at the peak of the day also helps to set that rhythm. And here we are with blue light and everything from our LED light bulbs to our phone screens, our TV screens, our computer screens, all of our screens and fake lights. And there I was waking up at 8 a.m. every morning, missing the sunrise and then looking at my screens. And so this 
this really felt true. And it is because as diurnal animals that that operate during daytime hours, our evolutionary our evolutionary biology is set by how we interact in nature with the sun. And so all of these systems evolved with the sun. So I looked to the sun to heal. I started waking up to see the sunrise. I went outside at the peak of the midday sun. I saw the sunset and I made sure that I wasn't looking at screens after sunset and that if I absolutely had to, that I was wearing blue light blockers. And this really started to shift my health. I started getting outside, walking constantly, right? Doing 15, 20,000 steps a day, listening to birdsong, which we talked about at the beginning, regulates your parasympathetic nervous system. These were precious moments of learning how to heal with nature, looking at my nature, at the diet that I might have evolved eating, at the practices that I might have evolved. And I started bringing in things like meditation. And I started discovering that the Earth's resonance, the Schumann resonance, which is 7.83 hertz, is the same as certain brainwaves in human biology. I think it's the same as, as theta brainwaves. And in meditation, we strive to get to that space of theta, of, of just sometimes it's called bliss, the void, whatever you want to God, whatever you want to call it. We're actually looking to be in resonance with the earth. And now on my farm, when I go out and I see the goats and the cows chewing their cud and they just sort of melt into the distance, they are in the presence moment. And I think about what it might have been to be an early human, that we would have spent a lot of our time just in the present, just kind of absorbed in our surroundings, not thinking, not thinking about all of our yesterdays or worrying about all of our tomorrows, but just being present in the unimpeachable now. And I see that when I watch cows and goats chew their cud when they just sort of melt into that blissful state. And I think in some ways, meditation is just biohacking, trying to get back to that. And it's the knowledge that it's available to us at every moment of every day. And that is what you see when you go outside and you spend time with animals in nature. You learn so much about what it is to be present here and now and all of these tools that we're developing and they are good tools. Please do not get me wrong. I really believe in meditation and food as medicine and seeing sunrises and sunsets. Those are medicine, but it's all, it's all available to us right now. And, and I think that's important to remember and nature shows us that. And so biohacking is really just this way to try to rediscover our natural state, to try to reach homeostasis. And as I discovered all of these things, as I really got in tune with my nature by getting in tune with nature, it became clearer and clearer that the farm had to happen. And so through a lot of work, 
through a lot of work, my my husband, who was not my husband at the time, Josh, found us alone and we got a farm. And this farm was not in the West. This place that I had called home my whole life and I loved nothing more than that ocean of grass and the prairie, those long drives of just vistas. But we couldn't afford anything in the West. Land was so expensive and we didn't have the money to build a house if we bought just the land and we wanted to be there now. And whether or not it was the right choice, my husband and I love a challenge. And so we bought a little piece of property right on the New York-Vermont border, had five barns and a house and a guest house and 65 acres and we could afford it, which was nothing like anything out West with the idea that we knew that somehow, and I know now somehow we will make it back out West. And it cleaved my heart in two to leave. I cried. I'm, I'm still crying about it, honestly, but I cried heavily for months having left knowing that that, that was my heart's home and so much of my heart's purpose but we were here on the farm. There was finally the opportunity that we had been waiting for all this time to be truly in connection with our food. And as we imagined this, we imagined a space where we could experiment. We had had this really unique opportunity for the last decade to see the lives animals lived from the inside out as butchers to look at these carcasses and to get to explore how they lived and how different grasses and different practices changed that carcass composition. And we had a lot of ideas. The first thing that we wanted to do is we knew that so much of pasture-raised chicken and pork operations are pasture-raised, which is great, but Pigs and chickens are monogastric animals like us, which means that they can't survive on grass alone. And a lot of them are fed supplementally feed that has corn and soy in it. And to get back to this idea of polyunsaturated fatty acids, corn and soy oils are some of the biggest offenders. And when animals eat these grains, it accumulates inside of their fat, as polyunsaturated fatty acids, these inflammatory omega-6 oils. And so we knew that we definitely wanted to experiment with pork and chicken that was fed a, a no, no corn, no soy, no sunflower seed diet. And we wanted to experiment with ducks and geese. And we wanted to raise some of our own ruminants. And so as I sit here and I stare out the window looking at this massive pine tree that's so foreign to me, these eastern pine trees. And it's blowing in these crazy winds we've had lately, and there's, there's this light, powdery snow. And outside, I know that my now husband, Josh, this man that has been with me for, whew, for 13 years, is out feeding the goats and the cows there, their dinner. He'll throw down a bale of hay for the cows and the goats. He'll feed the pigs some corn, soy, and sunflower seed free feed. We've been here for two years, almost to the day. Two years of getting to find a different level of connection with our food. Two years of spending time where we 
raise things with our own hands. I haul water out in five-gallon buckets to feed the pigs, to soak their feed. Two years of filling our freezers and getting to eat from them, getting to eat our chicken, our duck, our goose, our pork, and getting to experiment with all of these things that we had seen. And so when we first got here and we had been working with some of our farmers and ranchers that were generous enough to let two, again, starry-eyed kids learn a little bit about what it takes to raise food. But we came out here and we didn't have a ton of experiment experience and we just dove right in. And my, my husband and I have this, this saying, we were once asked for some cutesy publication in Denver. They were talking to food people for Valentine's Day about couples that worked in food together. And they asked for five words to describe us. And all of these couples wrote in, well, you know, loving and caring. And ours was, fuck it, let's do this. And that's how we started the farm. We ordered meat birds and we just started going. We found a way to build a chicken tractor and we quickly found that the birds congregated at the feeder, that all of the Salatin-style methods advocated for feeding, all like for free feeding, so there was just infinite grain. Well, we found that the chickens didn't leave their grain feeders and that didn't feel quite right to us. And so we started finding ways to push them to forage more, that they needed some pressure to forage because just like us, if given a full refrigerator of food, maybe we're not gonna make the best choice for our bodies because our biology dictates that if there are calories available, then we should take them. And so we started pushing them to feed a little bit and started refining throughout our different groups. And, and we do sort of blocks of groups. We do a spring group, a midsummer group, and a summer to fall group. Started trying, kind of experimenting and tweaking our methodology. And then we get to see the carcasses. But first, there was death, right? All of a sudden, we were raising the animals that we were then killing for our food. And that became a true connection point to me. I had experienced a fair amount of poultry slaughter prior to getting to the farm. And some larger animals, some, some sheep, a couple of pigs. But all of a sudden, this was a big part of how we put food on our tables was to walk through the portal of death. And to have put in that care to be with those animals, to be connected to them every single day, and then to have their death fall at our hands so that we could fill our freezers. And the question that I get the most often, I get it on social media, I get it when I tell people what I do, how, how can you do that? Hmm. How can I do that? We are so detached from death. We do not grow up in a space where we have to kill our, kill our food to eat it. We don't grow up in a space where we live in intergenerational households where we see our grandparents, maybe our great-grandparents, pass on. We put death away in nursing homes and we outsource people to kill our food because... We, 
we want to avoid death. We spend all of this time slathering our face in all of these creams and all of these ways to stay young because if we're old, then we won't be that much closer to death. And we're so afraid that that's an ending, that it's the ending. But when we're raising our own food and we're participating in the system of nature, where I go out and I find the carcass of a fox decomposing, having been eaten by coyotes and bobcats in our backwoods, rust left to decompose, and I feel the luscious, thick, humus soil beneath my feet. And when I slit the throat of the chickens, when I pull it through the cone and I pull their head down and all that blood spills into a bucket that then goes back onto my vegetable garden as an excellent source of fertilizer, and as their feathers and their bones and their guts go into my compost pile, which then again goes into my garden, some of which goes back to feed my chickens. And as I fill my freezer and I feel just this great sense of overwhelming joy at all of the nourishment that I will receive throughout the year. And in that moment, I feel everything. Because death, like cud chewing, it snaps us to the present. There is no other choice but to be present in that moment, to be there, to experience that indescribable space where you watch a life leave a body and you know suddenly that it is gone, that whatever has, whatever force animates that thing has, has dissipated into the ether. And there is grief and there is sorrow and there is joy and there is love and there is knowing and there is a feeling in your bones of connectedness to the cycle of life. And you know that that meat will go into your body, that it will nourish you, that it will fill you with joy, that it will bring people and community around your table, will offer you yet another chance at connection before it goes into your cells, all of those nutrients that will fuel your purposes, that you will go out and do life, connect, make more connections, make more soil, grow more food, eat more food, love more people. You know that death isn't the end. It's just the beginning. It's the beginning of something else. It's a portal to another, another plane of existence that is unknown to us. And, and yes, there is nothing scarier than that unknown. I think in many ways, this brings us back to the beginning. It brings us back to the death that I experienced as a child that I think really guided me throughout my life. It piqued my curiosity and it set me out on a path to find connection because the death of my childhood was so disconnected. And that made it scary. That made it unbelievably scary. And it filled me with anxiety and dread. And I went to heal that anxiety and dread with food because I knew that food was medicine. And what I found was a mirror for all the ways that it was possible to heal. I saw the idea that I am separate from nature melt away 
that those walls came down and I saw that I am a part of nature. Just a small piece, just a small cog in the most beautiful machinery that has ever existed. And to be that little cog turning at whatever speed I get to turn, that is my purpose in life to be in connection with all these other cogs, to know that, that just those little quarter turns that I'm constantly making are a part of this greater orchestra that I can't even know. And so was talking about death a really dark way to start this podcast? Maybe. But to deny our darkness is to deny our own becoming our own cycle of death and rebirth, and our own ever-evolving towards the eternal that we don't even understand. And all of this has been my connection point, the soul contract that I'm fulfilling with meat, with death, with food. And it has healed me in ways I can't even begin to describe. It has healed my body, yes, has gone a long way towards healing my hormones, towards healing my energy, towards healing much of the trauma I experienced as a child just being in this space, just seeking connection. And I think it was when I stopped looking towards other people, towards doctors, towards authorities, towards all of these things for healing, and I recognized that healing is my fucking birthright. And I see that, I see that out in nature, that this is what I was born to do to heal. That's when everything really started to shift and change. When I knew that I was a part of nature, not separate from it. And so anything I saw there, I could, I could cultivate and create in here in myself. I wondered how I was going to tell my story today how I was going to make these connection points, how I was going to lay the groundwork for the beginning of this podcast, which feels like a really natural transition for me. I have so many stories to tell, and I have so much space for so many different people to tell their stories. And they are stories about food. They are stories about farming. They are stories about regenerative agriculture. They are stories about aquaculture. They are stories about our minds and meditation and the different ways that we can seek healing or seek a better state of parasympathetic nervous system. They are stories that will be guided by science and guided by something unknown. They are stories that, for me, still come from that childhood sense of wanting to ask why, 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 until I get to the bottom of something. They are stories that I hope will foster curiosity in you, that will foster a sense of connection in you, to connect you back to yourself ultimately, right? is always the goal, to connect back to our truth, to our nature, to our sovereignty, to our liberation. And I think so much of that connection happens through nature. 
There will be stories about healing bodies and looking at really specific systems and looking at the system as a whole, something that we have forsaken in allopathic medicine thus far. That our bodies work as a whole concert, the same way the soil works as a whole concert. Our microbiome, as rich as the universe beneath our feet, trillions of strands of DNA that are not our own inhabiting this form, our form, our body. We are just as multitudinous as the soil beneath our feet because we are a part of that. That soil is a part of us. And if we don't ask why and become curious and seek out those connections, then we lose a chance to truly know ourselves, to know truth and to find our sovereign nature, our birthright to be liberated. The last two years have been a space of disconnection. I think so many, we have disconnected from each other, we have disconnected from nature, we have disconnected from from so many different things, and in its place, division and polarity has been sown. I want to imagine a space where we can heal, where we can come back, And for me, the space that we heal as communities has always been at the table. It has been the space where we break bread together, metaphorically, maybe literally too. My mission with Groundwork has always been to explore the interconnected themes of mind, body, and soil. To know that we are a part of nature, not separate from it. And to explore health, both mental and physical, and the health of land and farming through that lens. When I think about laying the groundwork, I think about the next 100 years and the next 1,000 years and what they might look like for the many, many generations to come. I spoke about my visit with Wes Jackson at the Land Institute in Kansas. And at the time that I visited, I think Wes Jackson was in his, his mid-80s. He was talking about how he had gotten off the phone with Wendell Berry. And I mean, my heart just broke open. And he looked at us. It was a very small group. And he said, you are the most important generation that Earth has ever seen. More important than the generation that walked out of Africa. Our future depends on you. So when I lay the groundwork, it is for that future, knowing that we are on a sort of precipice and that we can go many different directions from here. And it's all of that possibility that is held in the right, that in that unimpeachable now, this present, this moment, all of the possibility that can expand out from it. That is why groundwork. I want to explore all those possibilities for connection, for life, for love, for mind, body, and soil. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and I couldn't be more excited to begin this journey with you. Thank you so much for listening today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? 
This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at GroundworkCollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.